0: It is one of Lexington's most intriguing and salacious stories, one of corruption among the police force, drugs, high-profile names, and a cold case spanning more than four decades involving a young woman from a well-known family. There is no one that knows the story better than one former WKYT investigative reporter who blew the lid off the story with her book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. Her former news director saying, quote, she more or less turned over the rocks and the evils and the weevils came out. From WKYT Podcast, this is Uniquely Kentucky. I'm your host, Amber Philpott. Sally Denton is an investigative reporter, author, and historian, but to many in Kentucky, she's known for her book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. And in her own WKYT newsroom, she is revered for her work here in the early 80s. Sally Denton, welcome to Uniquely Kentucky. Thanks, Amber, for having me. Sally, whenever your name comes up in our newsroom now, I can tell you it sparks a lot of conversation even after all these years. (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) Before we talk about your book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, one of the reasons that I thought this was timely to talk to you and bring you on is because in the last couple of weeks, we have had some developments and really just some renewed interest and searches in the Melanie Flynn case from 40 years ago, and that is a main focus, Sally, uh, in your book. Can you believe that after all this time, after four decades, that this is back in the news?
1: Uh, well, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, this is an ongoing thing and has been, you know, for 40 years. And um, there's, uh, you know, the, there's been speculation all along that eventually her. Her remains would be found at some point, and um, or someone would finally start talking. And if the you know the tips are, are real, you know it's it's usually a deathbed confession or you know somebody that uh, just needs to get something off their chest for whatever reason. And it's also, I mean, I have to say, I'm pretty uh, skeptical and cautionary about jumping in and. and Uh, you know, thinking this is necessarily true. That river has been dredged numerous times, dating back to the late 70s, early 80s, mid-80s, and um, with a lot of tips coming into various, I'm not sure about Murphy's Landing specifically, but I know, you know, different places along the river uh, near where Melanie's purse was found have been searched repeatedly. So it's just, you know, like, uh, uh, it's, it's one of those enduring mysteries in, in Kentucky, and I think it will, and it's taken on kind of a, you know, a, a life of its own, and I think it will until there's some definitive answers, if ever.
0: And we should tell people that maybe aren't familiar with this case. Uh, Melanie Flynn went missing Back in 1977, after leaving her job here in Lexington, she was the daughter of a prominent family. Her brother uh, is a former Reds baseball player, very well known. And really, this story has captivated this town and this area for decades. Sally, you know this story very well. It was kind of a, a starting point, if you will, for yourself. You came here to WKYT and to Lexington as an investigative reporter, what, somewhere between 80 and 83?
1: Um, yeah, I think I started in 81, but it might have been the fall of 80. I can't really remember. Um, but it was one of the, I was hired by Ken Kurtz to, um, as an investigative reporter, my background had been in print. I had been with Jack Anderson, the legendary uh, investigative columnist um, in Washington, D.C when I came down to Kentucky. And um, Melanie Flynn was one of the first stories that, um, I mean, I came down to Kentucky and from DC, and there was actually graffiti um, around uh, Lexington saying, you know, Melanie Flynn. So naturally, the first question I asked when I got to the WKYT newsroom and were talking about stories that I would pursue, I was like, well, what about Melanie Flynn? Who's she? and so that's kind of how that started and i ended up uh going down that road you know pretty deeply which led me to the organization the company the organization of you know drug traffickers gun runners and and, uh all you know headquartered within the lexington police at the time so it was a pretty and it was and melanie was an informant for the lexington police and so it kind of I had no idea that that was, uh, I mean, this is 35 years and eight books ago for me. <laughs> but uh, so, but I had no idea that the Melanie Flynn case would really lead me into what became a 35-year journey into the darkest heart of American violence and corruption. And in fact, it's the, it's the um, it's it's actually the subject of my current book, my next book coming out. She's a, a part of it. I'm doing a. It's called All the Pretty Girls and Me and uh, A Memoir of Murder. And and she is one of of a handful of murdered women that I have uh, explored the cases in depth. And I have found that if you look at those cases, it always takes you to the top of the corrupt political and uh, economic power structure in any community or state. Mm -hmm. So she's very emblematic. Her case is very emblematic. Of much, much else that's going on in the world today, like the, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein story. You know, it's the, it's like I said, the party girls that get too, too close to the fire and they become expendable. And when you start looking at who's, you know, getting rid of the expendable girls, that inevitably takes you to um, a lot of different layers.
0: What was Lexington like when you first arrived here in terms of looking at it as an investigative reporter? Because I know as a reporter, and then especially an investigative reporter, many times you're always listening, you're watching, you're trying to figure out what is the next story that needs to be told or what needs to be uncovered. Um,
1: Well, it was really interesting to me because I didn't know much about, I didn't know anything about Lexington. My mother had grown up in Paducah, Kentucky, and so... My grandparents were there, and so I visited Kentucky, and so it wasn't completely you know, off my radar. But uh, what was fascinating to me is how much was kind of, I mean, I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I understood organized crime. I grew up in the middle of that. My parents were both very involved in politics there. And what struck me in Lexington is that there was so much kind of corruption, it seemed like Vegas to me, that everybody was operating in plain sight. And when you see something like that, then you've got to know that, well, who's offering them the protection? Because, you know, a lot of cities, there's a lot going on, but it's all sub-Rosa. So when you get somewhere and there's, you know, open gambling, open drug dealing, open prostitution, open, you know, it was like a wide open place with a lot going on, and the people that were involved were at the highest level of the social structure so that's what struck me first you know that there was no pretense of trying to pretend like it wasn't what it was mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and so it was kind of a, it was i would compare it to maybe newport newport kentucky in the in the 50s or 60s where it was a wide open town with a lot of uh, a lot of stuff happening and it was a reporter's paradise an, an investigative reporter's paradise so um and i brought to, i brought with me um, which turned out to be, you know, invaluable. I brought with me a background in, um, as I said, coming from Las Vegas, Nevada. You had a governor at the time of uh, John Y. Brown, who was a uh, an, an inveterate gambler and a, and a major figure on the Strip in Las Vegas. So while he might have seemed like a country bumpkin in Kentucky, I knew what he was doing in Vegas, and that none of this was in a vacuum. But The uh, uh, you know a lot of the law enforcement and witnesses and other people you know had trouble drawing the connections. I think what I brought to the story that I think probably even helped law enforcement was a recognition of the connections between Lexington and Miami, between Lexington and Chicago organized crime, between Lexington and Las Vegas, Nevada. And so to me it was all kind of obvious and. But it seemed to be elusive to most of the other reporters in that state.
0: You focused a lot of your work and reporting on corruption within the Lexington Police Department at that time. That included the narcotics division. Now, is that a place where, Sally, you saw things kind of coming together and the webbing, you realized, was probably far-reaching than you thought?
1: Um, Well, I started, actually, the first thing I did was um, look at uh, Bradley Bryant, who was a a Lexington person, and and that came, again, it was a bizarre little coincidence. There was the week I started, you know, to work for Ken Kurtz, um, there was a a little, I mean, a two-paragraph clip from the Las Vegas Review Journal in Las Vegas, Nevada that said a Lexington, Kentucky man had just turned himself into federal authorities in Nevada on espionage charges. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, okay, there's this firing happening out of <laughs> Lexington with connections to Vegas. So I initially got into this story through Bradley Bryant, which led me to the company and the drug running and gun running um, stuff that was that was happening and initially that did not lead directly to the Lexington Police Department. It, um, it led to other parts, you know, China Lake, that were stealing weapons from, from China Lake, and there was a big case in Philadelphia. It wasn't until I started circling in to the fact, it became clear that the company, which operated internationally, I mean, throughout the United States, but internationally as well, and it became clear that the company that Kentucky was their safe haven. They had landing strips, they had boats, they had protection, obviously, from, you know, I wanted, I was trying to figure out who were they getting protection from. They clearly had it from the DEA, the head of the DEA in Louisville, and um, and they had it from the Lexington Police Department. And there were other law enforcement agencies like the Kentucky State Police and the Louisville Police, and I think the, the Sheriff's Department there, they were all, uh becoming really concerned alcohol tobacco and firearms uh fbi uh they were all becoming concerned that there was this international operation operating international smuggling ring operating out of uh lexington kentucky that was getting protection and that started to become clear to the other agencies in other states that you know they were chasing these people and they all go back to Kentucky and kind of disappear and go off the radar, and nobody in law enforcement in Kentucky was would assist other agencies. So I got into it that way, and that's when I started getting into the narcotic unit specifically of the Lexington Police Department.
0: When you look at this story, we could probably easily spend several hours talking and breaking down your book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy, and if you are listening and you have not had the opportunity to read this book, it was published in 1989, uh, Sally's book, and it wa- it's worth your time. It's worth reading every page. And really, there are so many players in this story, so many people from all walks of life, who are somewhat connected, or Sally makes the connection in this book. Sally, talk to me about the players in this book, because there are so many different people that really come together uh, to make this story happen.
1: Yeah, well, there was, you know, Drew Thornton. I mean, he was the uh, the son. All of these were, you know, a group of uh, uh, kids that had grown up together in Lexington, and were the sons of, of, of prominent families. And, um, there's there's Drew Thornton and then there was Henry Vance and Bradley Bryant and you know and then there's the I mean it's a it's a writer's paradise hmm. <laughs> the characters are so over the top and then into the social world of Anita Madden and the horse people and 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 then uh, you know all of the all of the different uh, players the cops the the, the women the um, uh, it, it was just you know, it was like jumping into a a Balzac novel for me. you know, this it was just wild and um and as I said, so out in the open. But to try and pull all the threads together, um, I mean, honestly, it's taken me almost forty years to to connect a lot of the dots
0: just last night, we talked to your uh, former news director, Ken Kurtz. And we really love the quote that he said about you and your story and the book, Bluegrass Conspiracy. Uh, Your news director saying, she more or less turned over the rocks and the evils and the weevils came out.
1: And it was just one after another, and it was unheard of in in Lexington television. I mean, Kev gave me, uh, I think, the first story on the company. I can't remember when it appeared, probably 82 story was 13 minutes long straight without a break. Wow. At the top, top of the news at the six (laughs) o'clock. And that was absolutely unheard of. And we were only, you know, scratching the tip of the iceberg then.
0: Sally, your book starts off probably with one of the most bizarre incidents. It's uh, 1985, September 11th. And 40-year-old Andrew Thornton is found dead in a Knoxville driveway. This is a former Lexington narcotics officer wearing a bulletproof vest and had millions upon millions of cocaine strapped to him. This is sort of a jumping-off point that that I think you start to see a lot of different things in, in this are connected and the corruption potentially that you point out in your book How did you finally pull everything together for the book? I know you were asked to write something for another publication, another outlet, but this was some years after you had left Lexington and WKYT.
1: I mean, I left in 1983, and as you probably know, you know, I was run out of town on a rail. So I left, you know, at the time I left, all of the central players, such as Drew Thornton and Bill Kinnett and Bryant, they were all, you know, upstanding citizens. And... Uh, denying that uh, it was still Jimmy Lambert. I mean, nobody started going to jail until long after I was gone, and and it wasn't until Drew Thornton parachuted, you know, with 80 pounds of pure cocaine and the parachute didn't open, that and he had a uh, a list of people in his pocket that uh, the FBI assumed was a hit list of who you know that he had, he was coming back from Florida and. Then uh, in Miami at the Jockey Club, and they assumed that he was these three people on the list, and I was one of the people on the list that, you know, they had let out a contract. So it wasn't until Drew Thornton parachuted that all of a sudden it was like, wow, maybe Sally Denton really did know what she was talking about. And uh, the Washington Post asked me to uh, write a piece for them. And so the book contract came as a result of the Washington Post article.
0: Sally, did you ever fear for your life because you were poking a pretty big bear at the time? So I'm just wondering how often, if ever, you really felt like your life was in danger at the time when you were here in Lexington.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, extensively. I mean, there was a time, I believe it was about the time that the company uh, participants Killed the uh, prosecutor in Florida, Gene Barry, that there was a threat. There were a couple times that Ken Kurtz had to help me get away out of Kentucky, and in fact, out of uh, down to Mexico while the uh, FBI de- tried to defuse a a plot and figure out who they had picked up a wiretap somewhere involving a threat against me. So, and the station, uh, Ralph Gabbard, I think, was the manager at the time, and Ken. You know they were completely supportive, and I don't mean to impugn WKYT because they did everything within their power to take care of me. Ken and and Gabbard were you know couldn't have been more courageous and supportive. I owe my life to them.
0: I think certainly your story and knowing how you're reporting and what you're reporting led to certainly is. You know, something for all investigative journalists to aspire to. Sally, why was investigative reporting your passion and still is your passion?
1: You know, I, I, I don't know. It was kind of an accident, um, but I I certainly, it was a launching pad. The, you know, the Flynn case and the Kentucky stories were certainly a launch pad for, for my career. I mean, I've gone on, you know, I went on to do, I mean, I won best uh, investigative book. Last year from the IRE. so it's it's just kind of i think it's it's about silencing people. It really annoys me to I, I hate that when they're when people get killed or missing. I was especially obsessed with missing women and as I said, you know it it, it actually I didn't say this before, but I think it begins with uh, I went to the University of Colorado for college, and my my college roommate was murdered there and as part of a um, you know, we were kind of on the on the fringes of a dangerous group of smugglers that we had no idea what they were. We were kids, and that's kind of what it seems to me with with Melanie. Melanie, I mean, she's 23 years old at the time. She's a kid, mm-hmm. and she's in the middle of a very dangerous situation, and probably having fun and partying. And and her, she's from a prominent family, probably feels invulnerable. And you know, there she is, and she obviously somehow knows too much and is a threat, and they decide to get rid of her.
0: Just today, one of our sergeants that's at the search site here in central Kentucky for Melanie Flynn uh, actually said, told us on camera, you know, this case changed Lexington. It brought an eye to Lexington that was unfortunate, but here we are 40 years later. We're still talking about the case. They're still actively searching to find some answers. Sally, do you think that we're ever really going to know and we're ever going to be able to tie this story up and this case up and sort of put it away?
1: Well, you know, I really hope so. I really hope um, that there could be some kind, I mean, I agree with Ken Kurtz saying yesterday, there's no closure for a family for this, but I think actually even for the healing of the city of Lexington, I think if there could be some some answers and some justice that it would go a long way toward really helping helping everybody heal from um, the re- results of this. I mean, Melanie is hardly the only victim in all of this situation. But for me, it's kind of you know it's kind of a typical cold case. I mean, the, Melanie Flynn's case will never be solved, might never be solved. But what can be solved, what can be what is clear is that the Lexington Police Department 40 years ago didn't do their job. Mm-hmm. And until you look at why they didn't do their job, I feel, you know, I feel really hopeful for these new guys that are on the scene. And I saw one of the clips, and they seem very earnest and, mm-hmm. and devoted and, you know, want to go forward. But there's a part of me as a cynic that it's kind of, you know, there's a, that cavalry's calv- riding a, a rocking horse. Hmm. Um, there's the, you know, if you want to know what happened to Melanie Flynn, you have to go really deep into the Lexington Police Department and find out who was doing what, when, why. But I, I, I was, I did take heart at, at um, I think it was a sergeant or somebody that I saw, you know, we're here, it's 40 years later and we're here. Yeah. And that, that did really hearten me that there are still people that care about getting to the bottom of this. Well, and there's also a very interesting case that's in the Bluegrass Conspiracy, which is uh, the Rebecca uh, Rebecca Moore yes. case, and that was very similar. The same group involved, and they found her body um, washed up and very close to where Melanie's um, purse was found, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and they had, they were all traveling in the same circles. They work for the Cincinnati Trumps, the Cincinnati Mm nightclub. And so there's, I would imagine there's a lot more girls that we've never even heard of.
0: It has been 30 years since you published The Bluegrass Conspiracy. And right now it is front and center at one of our local bookstores. I know because one of our reporters just went over there. And bought your book just yesterday. Does that surprise you? All these years later, that people are still clamoring for your book and for this story.
1: Well, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, as I said, this is eight books ago, and um, all of my books have been successful. But this is my best-selling book still. Mm. I think it sold over two hundred thousand copies, and. And it's just, um, it's now option. Octavia Spencer has the option, the
0: film rights to it. And that is what a lot of people, Sally, have been wondering, when and if this story would ever make it to the big screen, because it certainly reads like a movie and something that wouldn't have necessarily happened in real life, but rather in the movies.
1: Well, it's been optioned a lot of times over the years. In fact, it's been optioned probably the entire time since it was published in 89. And in yeah. retrospect I think that at some of the times it, it was optioned in order to keep it out keep it from being made. All they had to do was pay me ten or twenty grand a year and I would shut up and I'm a slow learner. took about ten years before I figured out they're not trying to make this movie, you know. But Octavia Spencer Spencer and her Orat Entertainment are, you know, they're first class and they're committed and I feel confident that it's going to go somewhere this time.
0: As I said, we could talk about the Bluegrass Conspiracy for a lot longer, but you do have a slew of other books out, and Sally, you really run the gamut of interesting topics that you have chosen to write about over the years. So kind of take me through uh, some of your different works that you have published.
1: Well, it's really, uh, you know, if you look at my, if you look at my books, it, it, they seem like they're all over the map, and I'm actually asked to speak around the country about this from time to time, you know, what's the connection between organized crime in Kentucky, and uh, crooked Mormons in Utah in the 1800s, and the Bechtel Corporation, and, you know, they seem completely disparate and unconnected, but every single one of my books comes, I mean, my book after bluegrass conspiracy was um, the money and the power the rise of las vegas and its hold on america and that was really a deep dive into organized crime the the connection that where um, the intersection between organized crime intelligence and um, and government and so that took me into that kind of took me as bluegrass was kind of the micro of what was going on in one community the, the the dive into Las Vegas, Nevada took me into the macro what's going on in, in America, and its relationship with the world, and then after that it was after, oh, after uh, the money and the power that I had gotten a couple of threats. I had become a mother um, of you know three sons, three little boys, and there had been some threats, kind of reverberations from, from the Kentucky day. So I kind of did a segue into. Uh, 19th century American West, and I ended up doing three books there: uh, American Massacre, Faith and Betrayal, and Passion and Principle. And it was really to just kind of raise my children and lay low. But they were all investigative in nature too, but just in you know closed uh, events from the 1800s. And then I then I came back into the 20th century with The Pink Lady and the Plots Against the Presidency, uh, the Plots Against the President, which is a, against. Um, FDR, which is very resonant today, next to Bluegrass, that's the book that's selling more than anything, hmm. uh, because there's so it's about 1933 America with the real rise of fascism and, and Nazism and um, uh, a lot of fear and, and fear-mongering and a dangerous time in America in the world and in America. So that book has like a, a new kind of second coming and cult following. Cool. And then, and then I did the uh, the profiteers. That's my most most recent one, and that was really a look at kind of it's about the Bechtel Corporation, Bechtel and the men who built the world, and it's really a look at the uh, revolving door between government and industry, and and the corruption that that in, uh, entails. And but all of them really start with you know, these are all, as I say sometimes and when I speak, you know, the, the old adage that, you know, the victor writes the history uh, is really true. And what I've been doing is writing about all the losers. And, you know, the ones that nobody ever, the people that are forgotten, the forgotten histories here. And why, they're forgotten for a reason. They're diminished and disregarded for a reason. And if you look at those, And that's what I feel like Melanie Flynn is, you know? She was just a a 23-year-old party girl in Lexington, Kentucky. But man, you look at her and that takes you to a lot of understanding about the political and cultural and social uh, climate in the state of Kentucky. Sure. So that's kind of my passion is, you know, telling stories through characters
0: that tell a larger story. So when can we expect that latest book out?
1: It should be out in spring 2020, time for the presidential election, and maybe it'll have some some uh, relevance.
0: Sally, if people want to find out more about you or they want to find your books, how do people go about doing that? Where can people find you?
1: Uh, well, the book, uh, book is on Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest way, or certainly in Kentucky, Joseph Best. I think they probably sell more of my books than any other bookstore in America. Wow. Wow. Um, but uh and then my website is Sally at Sally dot com or Sally Denton dot com, and my email is Sally
0: at Sally Denton dot com. Sally Denton, it has been a pleasure. I feel like uh, in my 16 years of being around this newsroom, I've heard so much about you and so much about the work that you did in your short time that you were here in Lexington. And of course, in our newsroom, we could sit and talk about the bluegrass conspiracy forever, probably uh, every single page. But Uh, I'm going to encourage folks to go get the book and read it for themselves and and draw their own conclusions. Sally, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to meet you. Uh, I look forward to many more reads from you on corruption and uncovering the truth in the future. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.